All right. So we are in the uh, <clears throat> we're in the eighth century, seventh century. Muhammad died in six thirty two. Um, we had questions about the Quran last week, and um, actually, Christopher Gangi, um, him and his wife Carmen have been visiting on Sunday mornings, and Chris sent me some really good information about um, the Quran. And um, just a couple of things that I, um, just high points. When we talk about the Quran and the Bible, so if you think about the Quran, the Quran was dictated by Muhammad. So he received the messages from an angel is what he believed. And I don't doubt that that was true. I just don't think it was a angel of light. I think it was a fallen angel. Um, so the Quran, the message of the Quran came through Muhammad, one man alone. Versus the Bible that has 40 different people from all walks of life that God inspired to write his word. The Quran is written in one language in one land. So between Mecca and Medina is where... Muhammad did his ministry, if you will, versus the Bible covers three continents using three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Africa, Asia, and Europe were the three continents that God moved upon his servants who gave us the inspired word of God. The Quran's message given to Muhammad, it was received over a 22-year period. After Muhammad's death, we don't really know for sure. There's not a lot known, but a tradition says it was written in about two years when it was written down versus the Bible that was written over a period of a thousand years. <clears throat> the Quran is not corroborated by anyone else. It is Muhammad's word. He received the message. He dictated the message. There was no one else that received similar revelations versus the scripture all the writers of Scripture, 40 writers over a millennium, 40 writers over a thousand years, and all that they receive from God, it corroborates with one another. It flows. It is a consistent message across time, across geography, across periods of time. If you think of everything that happened in those centuries in which the scripture was written, there was a lot happening. Versus the Quran, one man, no corroboration, no similar revelations. Muhammad claimed to be the last true prophet of God, and his revelations alone are accurate. And so there's not a lot of critical... Um, thinking, critical writing. There is now. But because of the Quran is held, it's really, um, for instance, you know, you can't put another book on top of the Quran. That's forbidden. And so to critique it, to criticize it, to question it, 
is, um, is a death sentence, depending on who you're dealing with. And not, not a death sentence that, like this is some weird interpretation of the Quran. No. And we've seen this played out through history. So just a little bit about the, the differences between the Bible and the Quran. There really is no comparison whatsoever. And so don't ever let anyone tell you there is because there's not. Uh, it's not even close. Uh, most people who actually look at the Quran honestly from a critical point of view, it's, it's laughable that it is compared to something like the Bible, which is not just inspired by God, but it is amazing literature uh, as well. So, lots and lots of differences. So, this is not a class on the Quran. I couldn't teach that class anyways, but uh, there's lots there. And, and uh, I've got a really good document that has a lot of good information, and I'm happy to share that with anyone that might be interested. Um, in 711, I think we mentioned this. I'm going to start here. Uh, Muslims from North Africa invaded Spain. They crossed the Mediterranean Sea at what we now call the Rock of Gibraltar. At that time, it was called one of the Pillars of Hercules. And the general who led that Muslim invasion, his name was Tariq Ibn Ziyad. And he called that granite mountain the Mount of Tariq, or Jabal al-Tariq. That's how it became known as the Rock of Gibraltar. It, it just, from his name, it morphed into what we call it today in English. Uh, they, the Muslims invaded Spain. They occupied all of Spain, all of what we know as Spain today, uh, at least for a time. Uh, and for many years, they occupied um, very much of Spain. They formed, um, they formed what, what's, what they called Al-Andalus. And it was, in the Middle Ages, Christians called it the ornament of the world. Now remember, in the early Middle Ages, Europe, much of Europe, is in what we call the Dark Ages. So I don't want you to think that all of Europe, you know, there was nothing good happening, but, but in large part, much of Europe was plunged into darkness because of the barbarian hordes that began to rape and pillage and burn, and there was no law and order, and people fled the cities, libraries, things that were, where there was a concentration of arts and the culture, that all died in large part because of the, the new environment in Europe. But in Spain, you had this, um, this region of, the, of Europe where you had the Muslims who, who established this thing called Al-Andalus, the kingdom of Cordoba. Um, so back in Asia, there was a, a family, the Umayyad family, who basically were the leaders of the Islamic empire. And they had a rival family, um, the Abbasid family. And the Abbasid family basically um, performed a coup and killed all of the Umayyad family leaders and took over the Islamic empire. Except for one guy, he escaped, and he literally walked from present-day Iraq to North Africa because his mother was a Berber. And so it took him five years to go from the Middle East to Northern Africa, and once he got there, he, he was accepted because his mother was a Berber, so he was half Berber, and Berber is, a, is, what the, uh, is what the Romans called these people. They were barbarians. Um, it's kind of a derogatory term if you talk to someone who's um, uh, 
I think they, they call themselves the Amaze. Um, they look European. Uh, the, the gentleman who runs the La Princier Bakery here in town, right by the Public Works, his name is Hamid. Hamid is an Amaze. He's Algerian. You would think he's French, but he's a native North African. He's, he's what we would call a Berber. Uh, or the Amaze. That was um, Abdel Rahman. That was his mother was a Berber, and so Abdel Rahman finally makes it to North Africa. The Muslims invade Spain. Well, Abdel Rahman moves into Spain and he reestablishes the Umayyad dynasty in the western part of the Mediterranean there in Spain, and he creates this. Um, this kingdom, if you will, the kingdom of Cordoba. And it flourished. It was a center of trade, a center of commerce, a center of arts and culture. It really was a place of light in the midst of the Dark Ages. Uh, for a period of time, Jews, Christians, and Muslims lived together, worked together in harmony there. Um, but that didn't last because eventually persecution came to the Christians in particular because as they would preach the gospel, try to spread the gospel, um, once um, things kind of progressed, basically they began to be persecuted. Uh, the Muslims had a presence in Spain from 711 until 1492. In 1492 in southern Spain, um, there, was, um, there was an area that was left there that was still under Muslim rule. It was the last uh, Muslim kingdom, if you will, or, or Muslim uh, area, of, uh, area of Muslim rule that finally went away in 1492. And so Islam had a great impact on Spain, Spain's history, Spain's culture, for many years, for 700 years, almost, almost 800 years. Um, so while that's happening in Spain in the early 700s, there was a guy by the name of Winfred, born in Essex, England. And Winfred um, was tasked with, he was sent by the Pope to go and preach to the Germanic tribes the tribes of Germany. Now, Germany, as we know it today, was, was covered a much greater area. And so he actually went to what we would know as the Netherlands today. And Winfred goes to the Germanic tribes in the Netherlands, and he is a complete failure in his mind. He spent I, I, several years there and did not make a convert and went back uh, to Rome basically feeling like a complete failure. And, but he didn't give up. And so he ends up going back to... Uh, so when he was in the Netherlands, I can't remember the name of the tribe, but, the, the, but basically the, the king, the tribal chief, did not want to have anything to do with Christianity. And what he said was, if my ancestors are in hell, then that's where I want to be. I don't want your God. I don't want your gospel. I don't want to go to heaven. If my ancestors aren't in heaven, then I don't want to be there. I want to go to hell where they are. And it was, a, it was another failure in uh, Winfred's uh, view. And so he goes back to Rome with his tail tucked between his legs. He um, continues to learn, continues to grow. Uh, he is sent back to the Germanic tribes because they want to preach the gospel to these, these tribes that are um, ruling now large areas of the former Roman Empire. And so the Pope sends Winfred back and he goes to Germany um, to what would be, uh, you know, Germany today. I can't remember, uh, I should have it, but I don't remember the name of the village he went to. It was a very similar situation. You had a tribal chief there who was opposed to Christianity. He would not um, listen to Winfred. And um, 
The story goes that Winfred um, approached the gates of the village, the city, and as he and the king, the tribal chief, had barred the gates and said, "You Christians aren't even welcome to come into our town." And legend has it that Winfred stands before the gates and he makes the sign of the cross to the gates and the gates fly open. And the tribal chief was so shocked at the power of this God that he embraces Christianity and and encourages all of his people to embrace Christianity. And... um, Revival breaks out, basically. When Winfred goes back to Rome to report on the success he's having there, he is now um, receives a commendation from the Pope, and he is renamed. And he is he he is renamed Boniface. His name becomes Boniface. The Pope changes his name. And Winfred of Essex now becomes Boniface. Now, as you know, St. Boniface then goes back. He goes back to the Germanic tribes because that's the people he's called to. He feels drawn and called to, to these Germanic tribes. And so the story of Boniface is that one day he's walking and he these Germanic tribes would worship at these sacred oaks. So remember, when you read the Bible, you'll, you'll notice that the Bible talks about those who would go to the high places and they would sacrifice at the high places and they would have these sacred oaks. Well, these, it wasn't just the Germanic tribes. This was a pretty common pagan cult, custom across cultures. These gigantic oak trees were thought to be uh, entities associated with spirits, and so uh, they would sacrifice uh, to these gods of nature, these nature spirits. And the story is Winford or Boniface was walking down the road one day, and he sees this group of pagans getting ready to sacrifice a young prince to this sacred oak. And uh, he challenges them and tells them his God is greater. And so the long story short is he cuts down the sacred oak and he doesn't die, but the oak tree is cut down. And so the pagans are like, "Um, your God is more powerful than our God. Because if our God was really who we believed him to be, he would have killed you. He would not have allowed you to cut him down. And the story goes that Winfred sees a evergreen tree growing there and he uses the picture of the evergreen to, to, to talk about the everlasting life, the everlasting life they have in Christ. Um, and so the tradition that we hold of Christmas trees, lighted trees in our homes to celebrate Christmas, comes from St. Boniface. St. Boniface is the guy who gave us the tradition of Christmas trees to as an expression of the gospel, as a sign of the everlasting, the evergreen life that Christ gives us uh, by grace through faith in him. And so Boniface ministers in Germany for 30 years and uh, was very successful. He comes back to Rome after success, and he decides that he wants to go back to that first village. Yes. Well, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. He goes back to Rome, reports everything, and now by this time, he's like 70 years old. And and before he dies, he wants to go back to the village, the first village he went to that he felt like he failed. So he goes back to that same people all of those years later, and he takes with him um, other people. I think it was a group of like 50 people, and they go and they establish uh, a work there, and they're, they're one day baptizing. They have a group of converts that they're baptizing, and while they're getting ready to baptize these new converts, a gang of uh, hoodlum pagans... 
just roving gang of pagans came and they attacked Boniface and the Christians there. And Boniface would not allow his people to resist them, to fight back. He did not want any of those pagans to die. So Boniface allowed himself to be killed. Um, and he, that's how he died. He, he did die. The pagans killed him. I don't know. There is a place that he's buried and there's a tree that grows there. You can go to his grave today. It's in the Netherlands. Um, but um, there is a tree marking his grave. But it's not the same tree that he, you know, it's a different place. But they obviously planted a tree there. That tree is quite ancient as well. It, it's as ancient as it was alive when Boniface was alive, supposedly. It's very, very ancient tree. And so that's how St. Boniface died. He, he, he died preaching the gospel. Um, but he sowed those seeds and eventually Christianity took hold. So the Netherlands, um, Holland, um, as we go on in history, we're going to see that that became a Christian stronghold in Europe, a place of, uh, of freedom. So our Puritan ancestors fled England to the Netherlands, to the very place Boniface was killed by pagans. And so the work of Boniface was not in vain. Christianity took hold there. And actually, while, um, while Christians were being persecuted in England, they were fleeing to the Netherlands so that they could freely practice their faith. Uh, and then from the Netherlands, in other points, they came to America to establish this nation and religious freedom and proclaiming the gospel. All right, any questions about that or any thoughts, any other information? Anybody got anything? I ordered a book. I haven't started reading it yet called The Boniface, um, the Boniface Option. Yes, and I think at the beginning of this book, he gives some history about St. Boniface, but I haven't started reading it yet. So have you read it? You have? Okay. All right. Then in, uh, so St. Boniface goes to the Germanic tribes in 718, and he ministers for, for 30 years, over 30 years. In 726, we have in church history what's called the iconoclast controversy. Does anyone know what the word iconoclast means? Huh? No? Close. You, my two history students who both went through this lesson, do not know what iconoclast means. Wow. Got any Latin students here? What could that mean? Icon? Clast? No. Iconoclast means image breaker. So the iconoclast controversy that began in 726 and lasted for quite a while in, in church history. Um, so as Christianity spread across Europe, these pagan um, beliefs... These pagan groups who had various gods and goddesses and practices, and they were all idolaters. And so, as Christianity became popular, icons, symbols of the faith, were popular because pagans were used to having these symbols, these icons. And so what happened was they... they in some ways traded their pagan icons for other icons, icons of the faith. And as this practice kind of grew and there were these symbols and these icons and these relics and paintings and statues of saints and all of these things began to fill the churches, there were some people in the church who felt like this was becoming an idolatrous practice. And people were 
bowing down and praying before these images or these statues. And so church leaders begin to worry about this turning into idolatry. So in 726, the Byzantine emperor, Leo III, issued an edict ordering all statues to be removed from churches, all paintings to be whitewashed over. So they would paint frescoes on the walls. And so all these statues were to be removed. All of the paintings were to be whitewashed. And so what happened is... uh, Iconoclast, the iconoclast movement was church leaders, Christians would go into these churches and they would begin to, to destroy these icons, images. Now, I, I, when, every time I do this lesson in history, I think about, I just wonder what was destroyed? What was whitewashed over? What was destroyed that was probably amazing works of art, amazing pieces of art that were probably destroyed. Um, but, but that's what happened because they were seen as idols. And so Emperor Leo orders all of these things to be removed, covered up. He allowed a plain cross to remain in the church. So say, you know, we whitewashed our wall and there was a painting there of a saint uh, or an apostle uh, you could have a plain, simple cross in your church, but that, that, was, that was pretty much it. Well, this controversy continued uh, to ebb and flow across, uh, across a, a, a pretty good period of time. And there were people in the church, so people, for instance, the emperor makes this edict, but the priest the pastor at the local church didn't necessarily feel the same way because he didn't feel like his people were being idolatrous. He felt like these were symbols that they held precious, but they were symbols of the faith. So there was a real controversy within the church about whether these images should be destroyed and should be covered up, or should we allow the people to have these Icons as symbols of their faith, and we just need to do a better job of teaching them. Well, eventually, the Eastern churches went back. Remember, um, the Roman Empire divided. It came back together. Um, And ultimately, in 1054, it divided again. But uh, what happened eventually, uh, there was was an empress called Irene. Irene was, was really, it was... Constantine's, um, it was his grandson. Um, it was Constantine the fifth or fourth or fifth grandson, I believe. When he, it was time for him to take the throne, he was too young, so his mother, Irene, was, um, she was the regent. She was the one that kind of oversaw him. And so she basically ruled the empire for a period of time. And actually, she didn't do a bad job. And so she helped settle this iconoclast controversy. And what Irene said was, um, it's okay to have these icons in the church as long as they are not images of God himself. So we're not going to try to make images of God. Um, But as long as these icons are symbols of the faith, She said, it's okay to have them. So eventually the Eastern Church went back to having these icons and the Western Church remained opposed to icons in the church until around the beginning of the Renaissance. When the Renaissance happened and art, sculptures, paintings, uh, you had this explosion of art and culture with the Renaissance. Um, and so that's when it ended in the Western church. And so you had guys like, you know, Michelangelo doing, you know, artwork. Now that you go wait in line to see when you go visit the Vatican or these places in 
different parts of the world and museums. Um, you walk to the Sistine Chapel and see the painting that's all in the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Well, all of that, you know, that iconoclast controversy ended with the Renaissance. But it began right here in 726. And it lasted, you can see, through the centuries. Now, 732, a guy named Charles, who was the mayor of the Palace of the Franks. So remember, the Franks were the Germanic tribe that now occupied what we call Germany and France. And their southern border there in France was basically the Pyrenees Mountains. And then you had, um, you had um, these, these people called the Franks, where we get our name France. They were, this was the line of kings. So the line of kings um, of the Franks was called the Merovingian line. This guy Charles was the mayor of the palace. He wasn't the king, he was the mayor. But he's the guy that had the power because he was the leader. He was the guy that made everything happen, basically. He was the, the, the administrator, the governor. He ran everything. He made sure the kingdom ran the way it was supposed to. So by the time Charles comes along as the mayor of the Franks, the king of the Franks is more like a figurehead than actually someone who wields power. So the people didn't look to the king. They looked to the mayor. If they had a problem, they, they weren't trying to get to the king. They were talking to the mayor because the mayor was the guy that can make things happen. And so, uh, for whatever reason, the Muslims down in Spain decide they're going to invade and advance into Europe from Spain because they've taken over Spain and they're doing really good there. It's, remember, it's called the Ornament of the World. It's a place that's prosperous and flourishing and so the Muslims advance into Europe from Spain, and it is the mayor of the Franks, the mayor of the palace of the Franks, Charles, who leads the army to stop the Muslim invasion. Now, think about what would have happened had the Muslims been successful in advancing into Europe. Well, we, we don't know. So this Charles, we know him today as Charles Martel. Martel is an old French word that means hammer. Charles the Hammer. He was the mayor of the palace of the Franks. And as Charles and his Frankish army stood, it is said they stood like a wall of ice rejecting the wave of Muslim invaders and that Charles hammered the Muslim invaders and did not allow them to advance and they retreated back into Spain. And Charles thus earned the nickname Charles the Hammer or Charles Martel. So we can hypothetically think about what our history might have been like had the Muslims been successful in invading Europe from Spain, but they weren't. So it doesn't do us any good to deal with hypotheticals because that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because that was not God's plan or God's purpose. So what we, what we should do, though, is thank God. We need to be thankful to God because God put a man in place who was able to withstand that invasion and our history is our history today and it could have been very different had things not worked out. So Charles Martel, mayor of the Palace of the Franks,
continued to be extremely powerful in the, the kingdom of the Franks. He had a son. His son's name was Pepin. He was called Pepin the Short. I'm guessing because he probably wasn't anything like Jesse. Um, Pepin the Short was the son of Charles Martel. And as good a leader as Charles was, it is said that Pepin was an even better leader than Charles. And so as Pepin is now the mayor of the Franks, he takes that position from his father when his father passes on. And his son Pepin becomes the mayor of the palace of the Franks. Pepin is looking around and he says, um, we got a king here, but he's pretty much worthless. Nobody respects him. He has no power except he's got a title. He's got a throne that he inherited by birth, but there's nothing kingly about him. So Pepin goes to the Pope and he says, oh, Pope, you need to do something. Because the king I serve is not a king at all. And I can imagine that Pepin reminded the Pope that it was his dad, Charles the Hammer, who hammered the Muslims and didn't allow the Muslims to take over Europe, which would have had a great impact on the Pope and the church. And so Pepin the Short gets the agreement of the Pope in Rome that Pepin should be the king of the Franks and not the king of the Franks. And so the Merovingian line of kings in the Frankish Empire came to an end with Pepin. And the Pope crowns Pepin as king of the Franks. And this was the first time that a pope crowned a leader as king. So this was the first recorded crowning of a civil ruler by a pope. It was Pepin the Short, the son of Charles Martel, that was crowned by the pope to become king of the Franks, bringing an end to the Merovingian line and starting what was called the Carolingian line of rulers. I know you think this has nothing to do with us today, but alas, it does. So 751, Pepin the Short is crowned the king of the Franks by the Pope. First time ever it's happened. And nobody was really thinking forward about what the implications of this could be with a Pope crowning a king. It just seems like it was the right thing to do and it worked. And it's how Pepin gained power and the people of the Frankish Empire were all for it because Pepin was the guy. He was the guy that took care of them, not the king. It was the mayor. Well, now the mayor has become the king. Well, in 756, there was this thing that Pepin did. He made a donation to the Pope. It was called the Donation of Pepin. And it was land that was granted to the church by the new king of the Franks. And these lands were the establishment of what was called the Papal States. And it was the beginning of the temporal reign of the papacy. So until this time, the church didn't really own any land per se. The Pope was there. He, he had this position and he was seen as as powerful in ruling the church, but with the donation of Pepin and the establishment of the papal states, the state of the church came into being, and now the church actually owned territories, and you can go to a map of, of Italy, a historical map, and you'll see that actually the papal states covered quite a bit of territory in Italy. And the papal states were there in play until, until the 1800s. So uh, these series of territories uh, in the Italian peninsula and, and in parts of what we would now call France, there were also regions that were part of the papal states. Some of those 
fell away through history. But it wasn't until 1870 with the unification of Italy that the Papal States basically went away. And what you're left with now is Vatican City, which is a sovereign, it's a sovereign piece of property. It's a sovereign nation. So Vatican City is not part of Italy. It's not ruled by Italy. It's ruled by the Pope. It is a sovereign nation. Well, that's the way the Papal States were for, for centuries. From 756 until the late 1800s, the Papal States were ruled by the Pope. They were the state of the church. In 768, upon the death of Pepin, the Frankish king, his son, Charles. So Grandpa Charles Martel, now we have another Charles, the grandson of Charles Martel. His name is Charles, and he takes the throne upon the death of his father, Pepin. Now, who knows what we know this Charles by today? What's his name that we know him by today? Do you remember? Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Yes, Charlemagne. But his name was Charles. So Charlemagne, or Charlemagna, Charles the Great. That's what Charlemagne means, Charles the Great. He was deemed Charles the Great. We call him Charlemagne. That's how history mostly knows him. So Charlemagne inherited the Frankish Empire. Many people consider Charlemagne to be one of the greatest kings of the Middle Ages, and I, I believe that he, that he was. He did a lot of good things. So Charlemagne, Charles the Great, did not learn to read until he was an adult. And he never learned to write very well. He tried really hard, but he never could really master writing very well. But he did learn to read when he was an adult. But growing up as a young man, he, he did not know how to read. He becomes king, and he can't, can't really read or write. But he learned, and he was very committed to education. He thought education was so important for his subjects, for his people, that he basically issued an edict that every abbey and every monastery was to establish a school to offer free education. So all across the Frankish Empire, every abbey, every monastery was to have a school, and that school was to educate children free, or adults for free. So in a sense, Charlemagne was the guy who, who gave us free education. I mean, free education was a, a very big deal to him, and he established it across the Frankish kingdom, which is much of Europe. I mean, it's, it's Europe today. So free education in Europe began with Charlemagne, yes. Yes, absolutely. They were, Ill yeah, you, you know, it's, it's like it is in a lot of, a lot of cultures. It, it depended on your social status. So the majority of people were illiterate because, remember, in the Dark Ages, they're too busy trying to survive. Um, and, and that's probably why even Charlemagne didn't learn to read or write. I mean, you know, you're fighting wars, you're ruling a kingdom, you're doing all this, you're, you've got other people... That, um, that you have doing a lot of things, and for whatever reason, Charlemagne did not learn to read or write till he was an adult, till he had time, the luxury to do it. And so this is what happened across Europe was when the Roman Empire collapsed, law and order collapsed, there is no leisure time anymore because now it's survival. So um, we won't get there today, but next week we'll talk about the invasion of the Vikings. And, um, and, and this is not just in Europe. This is across the world. When people have to spend their energies trying to survive, they don't have time to draw pictures, write stories, sculpt statues, think, 
and ponder the mysteries of life. They're just out there literally trying to figure out how they're going to live today. Hierarchy of needs. Hierarchy of needs. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's right. And so who cares if I can read or write if I'm going to die of hunger? So what's more important, reading and writing or surviving the day? Well, survival, safety uh, is the more important thing. But what, what these empires did in these kings is they established law and order across their empires. It gave people then more opportunity, and so education was encouraged. Charlemagne also developed a justice system that included a jury and a verdict. And so not only was he called Charles the Great, but he was called Charles the Civilizer because there was something civilized about having a jury and a verdict versus somebody who had more right than you because they had more might than you decide your fate. Charlemagne realized that there needed to be a better system of justice to rule his people, and he put that into place as well. Charlemagne expanded his kingdom, the kingdom of the Franks, to, to the place that he controlled today, what we would call modern-day Germany, France, Switzerland, northern Italy, he controlled an area not nearly as large as the Roman Empire, but it would be 1,000 years. It would not be until Napoleon came to power that someone would control across Europe a, a, an empire larger than what Charlemagne expanded his to. Now... Charlemagne also went into Spain to try to take Spain back from the Muslims. His first attempt to do that was not very successful. He was defeated, and he had to retreat back home. And in the retreat, anyone ever heard of the song of Roland? Roland was Charlemagne's nephew, and it, it, it's, um, it's a, an epic poem about uh, this nephew of Charlemagne named Roland, who was the rear guard of Charlemagne's army. And as the Muslims were trying to pursue them to destroy Charlemagne's army, Roland and his band of men were the rear guard who stood and gave Charlemagne and his army time to escape. Um, Roland lost his life. And those men sacrificed themselves so that Charlemagne and that Frankish army could escape. Um, and so they wrote a song, an epic song, about Roland um, and his heroic death. But Charlemagne would come back later on and would help basically uh, begin to undo the Muslim influence in Spain. So it, it was not until 1492. In 1492, the last uh, vestige of Muslim rule in Spain ended. Uh, Charlemagne helped initiate that. Now, in 800 A.D., so 32 years after he became the king of the Franks, on Christmas Day... In 800, Charlemagne is crowned. Does anyone know what he was crowned? What his title, the title given to him by the Pope? He was already king of the Franks. He was crowned on Christmas Day of 800, the Holy Roman Emperor. So Charlemagne became the Holy Roman Emperor the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire by Pope Leo. It was a glorious day for Charlemagne. There was much pomp and circumstance, but what Charlemagne and what the Pope didn't realize is, and of course, where did the precedence come of a Pope crowning an emperor? Well, it started with Charles, with Charlemagne's dad, Pepin, and the Pope then. Now we have another pope who is 
crowning Charlemagne emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, don't be confused. This is not the same Roman Empire that ruled the Mediterranean world. This Roman Empire was centered in Germany. So this was European. It was Germanic. This was the kingdom of the Franks. And so this, we're gonna, we're, as we go through history, you're going to see this, this has a huge impact on the history of Europe. It has a huge impact on, on us. Um, but it all started here, in a sense, the seeds of great conflict was sown in 800 on Christmas Day when the Pope crowned Charlemagne as the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, <clears throat> Charlemagne um, had what was called the Treaty of Verdun. And what he did, he, saw, he knew that upon his death, his kingdom was going to be divided. So he, he issued this Treaty of Verdun to basically divide his kingdom between his grandsons so that it would be a peaceful, um, it wouldn't be filled with conflict. The problem was there was, there was never again a Charles the Great. None of, none of Charlemagne's descendants ruled. He was the last great ruler of the Franks. After the Treaty of Verdun in, um, when it was issued in 790, let's see, when was that issued? I'm sorry, and uh, upon his death, I don't have the date here, it was after his crowning. Uh, basically, France and Germany became independent nations. They divided because when the kingdom was divided, one of his grandsons got France, one of his grandsons got Germany, and, and they, they each had their area of land that they ruled, but they didn't rule together, they didn't work together, and eventually France and Germany became separate entities, separate kingdoms, separate nations, and they, they were in conflict over land. So... And we see this conflict that began with the Treaty of Verdun when Charlemagne divided his kingdom between his grandsons and France and Germany become separate nations. Um, World War I. World War II. Who are, who are the two? France and Germany are right in the middle of these wars. And, and this conflict... The seeds of these conflicts really were sown all the way back with the Treaty of Verdun when the, when the kingdom was divided, and eventually those became two nations that were in conflict with one another throughout history. Did you have something, John? Yeah, when uh, the Pope um, crowned Pepin, uh -huh. I mean, father, right? Yes. Yes. No, Charles Martel was the grandfather of Charlemagne. Pepin was his dad. Okay. So when he did that, was that the first time he had a Yes. It was the first time the Pope crowned a civil ruler. So that was a huge thing. Yeah, it was a huge thing. Set the precedence for, for Charlemagne to be crowned in 800. Yeah. Right. Yeah, well, it, it, yes. It, it didn't at that time, but it set the stage for it to eventually. Yes. Yes, sir. When Charles the Hammer and then his son became the king, was the same king in place for both of those? Same reign? The same Frankish king? Yes, sir. No, I don't believe so. Not, not really, because he was so weak. The will of the people, the people loved Pepin. He had so much power. I'm sure there was resistance, but there was no practical resistance that could keep it from happening. And when the Pope put his blessing on, which is why Pepin was really smart. He didn't just try to overthrow the king. He went to the Pope, and he says, I need you. So it wasn't, it wasn't Pepin who took the throne, in essence, from the Frankish king. It was the Pope who said... This guy needs to be king. And when the Pope did that, the people already loved Pepin. They were all for it. 
And so it was not a, yeah, there was not a lot of opposition there. Uh, so his son evidently was, that's a great question that, that I, um, Treaty of Verdun was in 843. Um, let's see. Is it um, is it um, like a historical? No, well, now you've got me curious. Maybe not if they wrote a book about him. Okay. In 813, Charlemagne crowned his son, Louis the Pious, king of Aquitaine, as co-emperor. Louis became sole emperor when Charlemagne died in January 814 at the age of 72, ending his reign of, four, of more than four decades at the time of his death. Um, so, but evidently, so it sounds like, and I'm, I'm going to look at this and if Chris Gangi is listening to this, he'll be able to give me a lot of good information, I'll bet you. But, uh, so he, he was co-emperor Charlemagne, but we know the Treaty of Verdun in, 18, in 843 divided the, um, divided the kingdom among the grandsons. So what it sounds like is because there was a recognition probably that the, the, the leadership was not as strong, they divided it in hopes probably that those smaller areas could be ruled better than one person trying to rule the whole thing and also avoid a, um, also perhaps avoid a conflict within the, the family. I'm gonna I'm gonna look at this. I'll I'll look at this more, and um, and see what we come up with. Any other questions? I don't, I don't think there was much opposition because the, by that time the Franks were ruling most of Europe. So, you know, I'm sure there was some, but in terms of that area of Europe, they were already under Frankish rule. And so I think they saw it as a, I mean, they saw this as the, the it was called the Roman Empire for a reason. So they wanted to reestablish the Roman Empire. I mean, it, it, it's not anywhere close to what the Roman Empire was, but the glory of Rome, so that ruling the world, they, these guys wanted to do that. The, we're going to see later on in history, the, the Russians had the same, they wanted to, to, to do the same thing with the Byzantine in the East. Um, and so... You know, this is man's quest for power. And with the Eastern Orthodox Church as involved, is that... Not with this. With Russian quest, no. 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh huh. Between east and west, because of the power of the church, back to illiteracy again, which is what Charlemagne was establishing as schools, was so important. So if you go and you read about the Treaty of Verdun, uh, there there was there was conflict within the family, within the succession of rulership, and who's going to have power over what, and. You know, in a, just a, from a very high view, this is why you had the conflict that began and remained between France and Germany. And it was all conflict over land. Who gets this land? Who gets that land? And, and so as they divided those, the kingdom basically into three parts, it wasn't clean and it wasn't without mess. And so it was messy, and just like we see in families today, you know, families get cross over the inheritance. Um, I'll look some more into that. Uh, that's the thing, you know, you can really dive into the weeds. There's so much history here, and, and it, it, it impacts us today. It impacts our, our maps. It impacts, you know, what's happened in our lifetimes and in our, in our fathers' and grandfathers' lifetimes. And there's no doubt about that. Okay, so we're going to stop right there with Charlemagne. And next week, we're going to pick up with the invasion of the Vikings. And we're going to talk about the Vikings. They're an interesting group of people.